Good morning, Third Street. Uh, my name is Rachel. I am Corey's wife. Uh, he's one of the co-lead pastors here at Third Street. And if you were with us last week, then you know that we kicked off a new series called Silent Night. Silent Night. And Pastor Kenny did a phenomenal job kicking that off. If you missed that, I encourage you, make sure you go back on uh, Apple or Spotify or YouTube and check out that word because he did a phenomenal job. And what he did was he laid the foundation, he laid the groundwork, he gave so much background to the life of Elijah, who we're going to be looking at. Now, this series, Silent Night, comes from, of course, you know, the Christmas carol, Silent Night, right? We sing it. Um, but this idea of Silent Night is that God speaks actually in the silence, that there's so much work that God does in the silence, in those moments when it feels silent in your life, when you feel like, is God even speaking? Is God even moving? Is God even hearing my prayers? Is he even doing anything? Those silent nights lay the groundwork for God to do so much. And in scripture, we see God move greatly in silent nights. And so what we're going to dive into is the next section of scripture in Elijah's life. So Pastor Kenny walked us through some crazy miracles that the prophet Elijah does. If you look at the Old Testament, there's tons and tons of prophets, and there's books in there, right? There's like Isaiah and Ezekiel and all these books that are written by prophets, but Elijah, who was one of God's greatest prophets in the Old Testament, he doesn't have a book. You know why? Because he's in everything. There's so much history that happens over the course of Israel, and Elijah's in all of it. So what you've got to read to find Elijah's story and the way that God uses him and the way that God moves through his life, you've got to read the whole history of Israel. You've got to read so much. And so we're in 1 Kings, and, and Pastor Kenny, he gave us this background of these miracles where God used Elijah to do crazy things, to prove his character, to prove who he was. Right, he brought down, Pastor Kenny talked about how he brought down fire. He talked about how um, he, he, he used Elijah to prophesy that the drought was going to end. And he did all of these things. Elijah does so many great works that then land us in 1 Kings 19, where we're going to go to right now. In 1 Kings 19, starting in verse 1, we see a little bit different side of Elijah than what we got introduced to last week. These two people here in the beginning, Ahab and, Je and Jezebel, Ahab was a king. Ahab was a king who, who Pastor Kenny taught us was super against Elijah, and then all of a sudden at the end of 1 Kings 18, he's like, oh man, that guy's pretty real. He kind of flips. And so it says, Ahab told Jezebel. Jezebel was a super powerful woman who was awful. We'll just leave it at that. Um, Ahab told Jezebel everything that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a, me sent a messenger to Elijah saying, may the gods punish me and do so severely if I don't make your life like the life of one of them by tomorrow. What she means is if I don't make you dead because the prophets of Baal were all dead because of the miracle that had happened. And just so you know, that was a terrible thing for her to say. It doesn't work out in her favor. It says, then Elijah became afraid and immediately ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba that belonged to Judah, he left his servant there. 
But he went on a day's journey into the wilderness. He sat down under a broom tree and he prayed that he might die. He said, I have had enough, Lord. Take my life, for I am no better than my ancestors. That sounds a little bit different than last week's Elijah. It says, then he lay down and he slept under the broom tree. Suddenly an angel touched him and the angel told him, get up and go eat. And then he looked and there at his head was a loaf of bread baked under hot stones and a jug of water. So he ate and drank and he laid down again. And then the angel of the Lord returned for a second time and touched him. He said, get up and eat or the journey will be too much for you. So he got up, ate and drank, and then on the strength from that food, he walked for 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. It's a crazy story. And it sounds so different from who we see Elijah to be last week. Elijah's a little out of character here. <laughs> when, I was, when I was reading this story and thinking about how do I, how do I contextualize this? How do, like, what, when in my own life, <laughs> when in my own life have I been a little out of character? Have things not quite lined up? And what Elijah does in this story is he starts connecting dots that don't connect. So I'm like, when have I started doing that? Because, you know, we all learn in different ways, right? Some of us learn from reading. Some of us learn from diving in. Some of us learn from the hard lessons of other people. I can't believe I'm going to tell you this story. So <laughs> when I was thinking about this, and I was like, when is a time in my own life where I connected a bunch of dots that don't connect? I've done it a lot. Um, and there was something that happened uh, this week that I was, telling, uh, I was telling Kenny about, and he was like, you have to tell that story. And I was like, well, I could. But um, in order for you to understand this story, you have to understand the backstory. So I'm going to take you back to, to the first time this surfaced. So this is 10 years ago. 10 years ago. So I have, I have no children. I was actually pregnant with one. I was pregnant with Sarah because um, I was pregnant for like 10 years. And... Um, and <laughs> My back kept popping out of alignment when I was pregnant with Sarah. And so there was this one day, my back was just killing me. I had nothing to do. And so I sat on the couch, and I watched a marathon on TV. It's not crazy, right? We've all watched some sort of television marathon. Um, I, I decided to dive into this show that I'd never seen before. I've heard people talk a lot about it, and I was like, I'll give this a try. So I watched a marathon. And it was a true marathon. It was like 10 hours of criminal minds. <laughs> yes, so I watched like 10 hours of criminal minds while I was pregnant with Sarah. Um, Corey and I, uh, we had a friend of ours who was living with, living with us at the time. His name is Donovan. Um, Donovan also watched 10 hours of criminal minds with me. And, uh, and so the reason, the reason Donovan was able to watch this 10-hour marathon with me is because uh, at the time, he had a job at a factory where he had to be at work at 5 p.m., and then he would get off his shift at 3 a.m. But a really important detail of this is that Donovan did not have a car. And so while Donovan was living with us, Corey and I committed to making sure that we got Donovan to and from work every day. So we would take turns uh, taking him at 5 and picking him up at 3. 
and I was watching a Criminal Minds marathon. So, <laughs> it's the middle of the night. So his job was half an hour away. So Corey and I had to get up at about 2.20 a.m. to leave our house by 2.30 a.m. to pick Donovan up in the middle of the night, <laughs> every night, from his job. So it's Corey's turn to wake up, <laughs> and he, he, was, he sets his alarm, he gets up, and, he, and when his alarm goes off at 2.20, I was sitting, sitting up, wasn't even laying, I was sitting up in bed like this. Like my eyes were just wide open. And I'm sitting up, and he, so he's like groggy, he's like, whoa, he's like, what are you doing? And I was like, Corey, somebody's been watching our house. <laughs> I'm like, they know that we leave at 2.30 every night. And he's like, what are you talking about? And I was like, somebody knows. They've been tracking, they know that you leave, and they're gonna watch your car leave, and they're gonna come in here, and they're gonna get me. And he's like, who are they? And I'm like, I don't know, but they exist. And he's like, okay, well you're clearly wide awake, so why don't you go get Donovan? And I was like, that makes sense. So I get up and I start getting ready and <laughs> I come back in from the bathroom and I just stand in the doorway and I was like, Corey. And he's like, what? I was like, I can't go. And he's like, why? I was like, because they probably did something to my car. They did something to my car and I'm gonna get halfway to Donovan's job to pick him up and then my car's gonna stop on the side of the road and they've been following me and so they know it and then they're, they're gonna get me there. And he's like, they don't exist. And I'm like, but these people in the world exist because Criminal Minds said that they did. And Criminal Minds told me that it was based off real cases. So these are real people. So these real people probably live in Canton. And these real people probably been watching my car. And these real people have been watching our house so they know. And he just stopped. Like, he doesn't say anything else. And he just goes, I'm about to get in this car with you, aren't I? I was like, you sure are. So we both walk out to the garage. And as we're getting in the car, I was like, hold on. And I go, I walk inside, and I'm like, Vinny, come on. And I get Vinny, who is my dog, and I put him in the car, and then I just sit down and buckle my seatbelt, and Corey's like, the dog? I was like, well, I wasn't going to leave the dog for them to get, because when they walk in our house, he's going to bark, and then they're going to kill my dog. And he says, nothing. <laughs> he just drives, me, him, and Vinny, <laughs> to Donovan's work at three o'clock in the morning and Donovan comes walking out and he he's going like this and he walks up to the car and he opens, he opens the back door. He's used to getting in the front because it's one of us that picks him up. He opens the back door and he goes, so this is a family affair today? And Corey just turns really slowly and he goes, don't ever let my wife watch Criminal Minds ever again. <laughs> And that is how I got banned from watching Criminal Minds. I've, I can honestly tell you I have not watched that show again in 10 years because I was ridiculous. I was ridiculous. I was up in the middle of the night, exhausted, connecting dots that literally do not connect. 
I created an entire scenario in my brain of people who were plotting against me. And I so believed it that I piled my husband and my dog into a car at 3 a.m. and made them drive with me. Right? I connected all of these dots. I created an entire alternate universe because of what I was taking in and then what I was fixating on. I connected so many dots and not a single one of them was even remotely correct, by the way. And that's what we see Elijah doing. That's what we see Elijah doing when he is so exhausted, when he is so depleted, he starts connecting dots that literally did not connect. Jezebel says, I want you dead. And so he's like, ah, I'm better off that way. People get mad at him and he just flees. He runs. He's like, well, none of that was successful. All of that was worthless. All those miracles that, that God just used me to perform, all of these things that just happened, that were a witness to the character of who God is, that were, that were a witness to how powerful God is, that was all worthless. He starts connecting these dots and making these blanket statements about himself. He says, I'm no better than my ancestors. Can we just pause on that sentence for a second? He says, I'm no better than my ancestors. I might as well die, is what he says. So he's, he is determined that his life is entirely worthless. And he's determined that so are his ancestors, and he's no better than them. Let's think about that for a second. So I'm no better than my ancestors. What do we know about the history of the nation of Israel up to this point? He's fixating on the Israelites that got, that got punished and told, you're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years because of your unbelief. When you look in the rest of the Old Testament, it says that they actually died because of their grumbling and complaining. And so he says, I'm no better than my ancestors, because that's what he's thinking of. Right? Who else are his ancestors? Abraham, the founder of our faith. Abraham, who had so much belief in the provision of God that he took his son up, his only son, by the way. Well, that's another story. He took his son Isaac up, and he was going to sacrifice his son because that's what God told him to do, but he had faith in God's provision. So he's like, I know this sounds crazy, but we're going to go because my God's going to provide. And he did, right? That's one of his ancestors, right? And then amidst the rest of his ancestors, he's got people like Jacob, right? So Jacob, Jacob is the person who later became named Israel, who had 12 sons, who became the 12 tribes of Israel, who became the nation of Israel. Jacob is known for wrestling with God himself. That's one of his ancestors. He's got Rachel. Of course, I got to include her. That's my name. So he's got Rachel in his ancestry. Rachel, who was, who was barren, who couldn't, who struggled to have kids, who was Jacob's favorite wife, who, who eventually birthed the son Joseph. Who's Joseph? The guy who interpreted dreams, who got sold into slavery by his brothers because they were super petty. But then he ends up being the one who ends up uh, with his brother standing before him, and he ends up feeding Israel when they're in a famine, right? Joseph is in there. He's got, he's got Moses in there, 
Moses, who, who delivered the nation from slavery in Egypt, who parted the Red Sea. God did so many miracles through Moses. Moses is the one who prayed and, and God ended up delivering manna, right? And then Moses gets right up to the promised land. And then who else is in the ancestry? Joshua. Joshua, who ends up leading them in and defeating a nation. Caleb. Caleb, who's so old. So old that Joshua gives him the opportunity to not fight in the battle, to take over the land of milk and honey, the promised land. And Caleb says, absolutely not. I have lived through so much. I know what my God has promised me. I will go through this battle because I am going to hold on to what God has promised. I know that I'm going to win, and I am going to see the promised land. These are his ancestors. So when he says... I'm no better than my ancestors. What he's doing is he's focusing on the wrong thing. He's focusing on all of the negative. He's making things so much worse than they are because he's exhausted. He's letting his feelings and his emotions drive him instead of the truth of who God is. And so one of the things I want us to take away today is that we have to make who God is bigger than how we feel in the moment. We have to make who God is bigger than how we feel in the moment. He becomes so taken over by his feelings and his depletion and his emotions that he has entirely lost perspective of who God is and what God is capable of doing. Is your identity rooted in God's truth or your feelings? Is what you are living into every single day rooted in who God has said you are or the lies that you have chosen to believe about who you feel you might be? There is absolutely a space and a place for emotions. What I am not telling you to do is compartmentalize, shut off your emotions, and live like a robot. Don't hear what I'm not saying. There is a place for emotions. But we cannot become so consumed by them that we're no longer living into who God has said that we are. So how do we do that? It's possible. We're going to get into that. We're going to get real tangible today. Before I give you the practical, I've got to point out one other thing about this passage. God didn't bother addressing Elijah's plea. Do you notice that? God didn't bother addressing Elijah's plea because that wasn't the root of the problem. God provided rest, and God provided food. Because what Elijah really needed was sleep and sustenance and God. So in Genesis, when we go all the way back to the beginning, we look at Genesis 1, and we look at Genesis 2, and we look at creation, there's this really unique thing that we see if we really start reading between the lines. When you look at how God made everything, God made darkness before the fall ever happened. 
it wasn't just light all the time. It was God all the time. Let me be super clear in what I'm saying. I'm not using the word light like we see it in John chapter 1. I'm using light like literal light, the sunlight. Light and darkness existed before the fall of man, before sin entered the world. When everything was flawless, there was darkness. So what that implies is that sleep and rest existed before the fall. Before we all had to have jobs to exist in our lives, before we all had to make money to buy our kids Christmas presents, sleep existed. So we were always intended to stop, to pause, to rest every single day. And God was present every single moment. There was no separation between us and him ever before the fall. To sleep is biblical, <laughs> right? To sleep is biblical. And then he takes rest one step further because what does it say on the seventh day of creation? What happens? He rested. He rested. But he rested all day which means he rested in the waking hours. He didn't just go to bed drained and be like, whew, start again tomorrow. He rested all day, and he told us to rest all day. And when we take that one step further and, and apply what we learned just a minute ago, he rested all day with us. So that one whole day where we're told to rest was one whole day of resting in the presence of God in an edifying, soul-filling way. What he didn't do on that seventh day was laundry. And you know why? Because they were naked. I got proof that laundry is from the fall. He didn't do laundry. He didn't clean the house. He didn't do yard work. He was not weeding. He was not outside mowing. He wasn't walking around with a broom brushing his dirt floors. That wasn't what was happening on the seventh day because the seventh day was edifying rest. That stuff is not edifying. If you tell me that it is, you are lying. You enjoy a clean house. The edification comes after the work is done and you rest and enjoy it. Right? It's true, edifying. God-centered rest. Let me say that one more time. God-centered rest. Because what's also not rest, what's also not rest is filling your time with people and things that are draining to you. Rest is not texting your best friend and being like, Let's grab some drinks. And then you talk crap about everybody for an hour. That's not rest or edifying. Rest is not binging criminal minds for 10 hours. It's terrible for your health. I have proof. I am still living in the ramifications of that 10 years later, having never watched an episode of Criminal Minds. Ask KT what I told him in a meeting the other day. It's ridiculous. Rest is edifying. It is God-centered, and he is present and 
by the way, it's a commandment. It's not just something that was modeled before the fall. It's something commanded on Mount Sinai to Moses. It's written down. When they needed a simplification of the law, that one was still there. You were created to live in this rhythm. And what we see in 1 Kings 18 and the chapters right before that is miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. It's all these things that Elijah was doing. And we read them and we're like, this is amazing. Elijah's so cool. I want to be just like him. Well, you should be. But practice better rest. Because what happened when he didn't? He ends up in the wilderness being like, I should just die. Because he's drained. Because he was living out of the rhythms that God had intended for him. Listen, what I want you to hear from this is that prioritizing rest is an act of faith and obedience that makes space for God to move in your life. When we don't prioritize it, what we end up worshiping and glorifying glorifying, is a grind culture created by today's world. And when we glorify busyness, when we look at our life and we're like, oh, I'm so busy. This is so good. I got so many things going. You know who you're glorifying? You and your calendar. You are worshiping your output. We are not intended to worship ourselves or our output, but we are created to worship and we will worship something. And if we're not careful about it, it's going to be our busyness. It's going to be our productivity. It's going to be the promotion. It's going to be the, the, um, the raise that you've been working for. It's going to be the position that you've been hoping for. We're going to worship something. And when you worship grind culture and you worship working all day and night, You're worshiping the wrong thing, and you are running yourself straight into the ground. And you're going to find yourself crying out in the exact same way as Elijah. The good news is, God heard Elijah. And so if that's where you are, he's going to hear you. You have not put yourself in a rhythm that is not impossible to undo. Because what do we see? Elijah kept going. God gave him exactly what he needed. He gave him rest. He gave him sustenance. I want you to notice what he gave him. He gave him bread and water. He didn't give him the Taco Bell drive-thru at 2 a.m. He didn't give him DoorDash after his kids went to bed. That's not healthy rhythms, and I'm speaking from experience. That's not what he gave him. He gave him sustenance. And he gave him such sustenance that Elijah went on. It says he, meant, he went to Mount Horeb. That's, a way of, that's Mount Sinai. It's the exact same place. And it's 200 miles. So Elijah went from, I want to die, to, that's not so bad. I think I could walk 200 miles. That's a drastic turnaround. It's amazing what rest and sustenance can do for your life. Rest shows that you trust God to move when you are not moving. Rest shows that you trust that God actually will work all things together for your good. It shows that you trust that God is working in the lives of others because you're not forcing yourself in. Shows that you trust that he will do it, not me. And rest distances you 
from what is exhausting you. And it helps God to have the space to give you a right perspective. Because believe it or not, God's been trying to get your attention. He's been trying to speak. He's been trying to move. It's not that he's not speaking. It's that we are not listening and making space. So I know. I know because I have sat under many people who have told me to rest. (laughs) That there is at least one or possibly 25 of you who are like, you're telling me to rest, but you don't know. You don't know my schedule. You don't know my boss. You don't know my demands. You don't know my family. You don't know my commitments. If you're telling me to rest in December, surely you don't know Christmas. Right? I know. I know. But what I want you to know is that I am telling you this because I have been in that position. I have been Elijah. I have been exhausted to the point of being like, this cannot go on. Maybe not I cannot go on, but this. Whatever this is can't keep happening. And something, um, something some of you know about me is that I fixate on things, and I have to know everything that there is to know about them. Um, so uh, proof of this, ask Jada. I spent an entire year studying the life of Elijah. She was so sick of me <laughs> because every time I sat down with her, I'm like, listen to this. You're not going to believe this. I was, I was so fixated on Elijah that, that last year we teach a chapel on Friday mornings at Malone, and we did Elijah for the entire time because I was like, I can't talk about anything else. Um, and we still were talking about Elijah this past Friday. Uh, I fixate. I have to know everything that there is to know. And so I studied Elijah for a super long time. And then I studied Sabbath. So this whole fall, I've been studying Sabbath. And I got the chance to, uh, to, to interview uh, 15 different people who have jobs ranging. It, I, you know what? It's just wild. From like the C-suite leadership to church leaders to ministry leaders to uh, people combating human trafficking, like all these different jobs. And I asked them, how do you rest? And every single one of them laughed (laughs) at that question. But then we really got into it. What does it look like? How do we do this? And because... I want to be super practical. I want to give you real tangible ways that you can rest so that by the grace of God, you do better than I did before I had to fixate on these things and study them so that something could get through to me. If I was going to boil it all down to one sentence, what I would say is set clear expectations and put something in your calendar. Set clear expectations and put something in your calendar. What do I mean by this? What do I mean by this? Okay, so two, two things that people said that stood out to me. Um, it's my friend, my friend Bianca. What she said, she said clear expectations. An hour a day, a day a week, and a week a year. An hour a day a day a week, and a week a year. That is a clear expectation of when and how you can rest. And what that embodies is the Genesis chapter 1 
view of rest. What did we say a little bit ago? There was rest every day. There was darkness and light every day. And then there was an entire day every week. So if you set a goal of an hour a day and a day a week, you just found biblical rhythm. And for the person who's feeling like that's impossible, this is how I did it. I started backing up my alarm clock by 15 minutes. We got to aim low. I started backing it up by 15 minutes until when I backed it up by 15, that felt good. I'm going to back it up by 15 more. And I backed it up by 15 minutes until I had achieved an hour. That's only four times. To be super clear, I had to back it up eight times because I hit snooze. (laughs) So I backed it up eight times. I backed my alarm clock up by 15 minutes, so I backed it up by two hours so that hopefully I would get up and have one hour. Realistic expectations. We are real people, but I do it. I backed it up by an hour so that I have an entire hour to sit alone, to read scripture for joy and edification, not teaching or work. I pray. If you tell me to pray about something, I do it in that hour. Because I don't want to be somebody who you're like, pray about this. And I'm like, okay. And then I see you again, and I'm like, crap, I never did that. So I do it in the morning. Because I tried to do an hour at bedtime, and I just fell asleep. So maybe, maybe you're a night owl, but like, I, I just went to bed. Back your alarm clock up by 15 minutes. Get yourself an hour a day. It's very doable. Now, what's harder? What's harder is that day a week. That day a week... That feels difficult because there's always something coming for your time. There's always something. So that is why I say put something on your calendar. So this was the, like, funniest thing that I discovered in sitting down with these people. My friend Bronwyn, she said, I literally go in my calendar and I write the word something. She's like, I take a whole block of time every single week and every single day. And if you look at my calendar, it says something. So that if somebody's standing across from me and they're like, hey, are you free? And I'm like, I don't know. So I pull out my calendar app, I look at it, and I'm like, I'm so sorry, I have something on my calendar. (laughs) She literally does this. She says, I'm so sorry, I have something on my calendar. When else are you free? And you know who's offended by that? Nobody. It's so practical. It's so tangible. That's so good. That's so good that I'm so mad I never thought of that in my life. She said, I literally just write something on my calendar. Put something on your calendar. And then honor God with what you do during that something. So if your calendar says something from 12 to 1 p.m. because you're a college student and you have the joy of booking your classes, honor God from 12 to 1 p.m. with that time, with that something. If it says something on Tuesdays all day because that's how your work schedule works out, then great. You got something on Tuesdays. You're not free. And that's okay. Nobody is going to get mad at you for setting boundaries that are good for your life. The only people who will get mad are the people who, you ready? The only people who are going to get mad are the people who benefited from you having no boundaries. 
and those are not friends who are deeply for you. Set your boundaries. Put something on your calendar and keep your boundaries. It's okay. If they're upset with you, tell them that Rachel at Third Street told you to do it and send them to me. I'll take that meeting for you. All right? I've done it before. I'll do it again. It's okay. Use me as your scapegoat. Right? Put something on your calendar. You guys, God created you on purpose. He created you for purpose. He created you with purpose. And what that purpose never has been and never was, was for you to waste away, to wither away in sadness, in depression, and not thriving in your life. That is no person on this earth's purpose. How do I know? How do I know? Because you were created in the image of God, and in the image of God, he rested in the garden. And, the, and that very same God who created us in his image was the one who went to Elijah and was like, you were made for so much more than, than sitting in this wilderness wishing that you could die. And then when Jesus Christ, his plan, always came to this earth, died on the cross, was resurrected on the third day, and then at Pentecost, the Spirit of God descended so that the Holy Spirit could live inside each and every one of us. He had every single one of you in mind. And that Holy Spirit, do you know what it says in Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit is? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. That is the fruit of the Spirit. That is what you were created to experience every single day of your life. If Jesus Christ is your Savior, then the fruit of the Spirit it should be pouring out of you. And if it is not, it is because something in your life is out of alignment. It's not because your purpose is to be miserable. It's because you need to realign your priorities and your life. And it is possible to experience that every day. So realign. Realign your calendar and your life. Put the work in because you are worth it. Because your gifts and your purpose matter in the kingdom of God. We have an entire conference for youth founded on the idea that every person is crucial because we want them to grasp that before they hit adulthood. Unfortunately, so many of us, myself included, run ourselves into the ground because we have bought into a culture more deeply than we have bought into Jesus. You have the ability to run your calendar. You have the ability to rest. And it is a lie from the pit of hell that you might think that you don't. Just like this sermon series is titled Silent Night. God appeared to Elijah and moved in that silent night. When Elijah was sitting alone in the wilderness, when he finally stepped away from everything that was ailing him, when he got away from the noise, in that silence is when God spoke so clearly. It's when God renewed his purpose. And it's when God took him 
even deeper into relationship with him. We're going to go deeper into this story next week. We're going to find out what happened next when Elijah kept going and didn't quit. And so, friends, if you hear nothing else today, what I want you to hear is that God is moving in your silence. That in that night, he will appear.